0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc.
1: And Jim and Susie are going to join me. I've got some friends here this morning who are going to help us as we open up God's Word and share the story of how He's working. And... And Tom, if if there is one more stool for me, I'll feel more comfortable. That'd be great. Uh, last week we had two stools as Karen and I were up here together, and this week we have three. Um, let me introduce to you Jim and Susie Neal, and then I'm going to talk at you for like you know a fast five minutes, and then we're going to have some conversation together here. Do we have the? Yes, we do. You're hiding the microphone. So Jim and Susie are good friends of ours from Cross Point Church. They've been friends of mine and of our family for probably a dozen years or so now, uh, plus or minus. And, and we've had the, the pleasure, uh, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, of seeing God show up in a number of crises and challenges in their lives. And it's a privilege to see God show up, but nobody wants to sign up. For the crisis and the challenge and the difficulties along the way, and they've graciously agreed to share some of their story with all of us this morning. and the context is really coming out of the things that Karen and I were sharing last week from First John chapter One. And maybe you weren't here. You didn't have a chance to to hear that. Those of you who are volunteering with the kids downstairs, thank you so much for your service down there. Uh, that message is available online. Um, but let me give you a, a quick snapshot of what we were talking about. Next slide. We were looking at First John chapter one, and particularly we concentrated on chap- verses five through ten. And, and at issue is that fellowship with God is genuine treasure, but. When we are walking in darkness instead of in light, we interrupt that fellowship. And and the walking in darkness includes anything that isn't really lining up with truthfulness and transparency in our lives. And many of the things that we are afraid about other people rejecting us or being ashamed of if they find out about, actually they're just covered by the grace of Jesus. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate who speaks in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice, not only for our own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And when we are forgiven, when we, when we've known the forgiveness of God, Karen said this last week, says it means God has bought the rights to your story. When Jesus pays for our sins, he owns the right to our story. And so instead of us trying to manage and to spin and be super careful about what we share, about with whom. There's a way of living that just involves letting God own the story. It's his to tell his way, the way he wants. And we can live securely in our relationships because our relationships with other people are built on the same foundation that our relationship with God is. It's not perfect performance. It's his grace that makes us accepted and acceptable in these relationships. So, oh, next slide. And so let's just catch up a little here. And so so these were uh, three take-homes from last week. Uh, the second one is cleansing doesn't come from denial, but from confession. Uh, it says in those verses that if we confess our sins, God's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And it's God's grace in Christ that is the foundation for our relationship, not only with him, but with others as well. So, next slide. So, unfortunately, the way that many of us are tempted to live is to kind of compress down and hide away the parts of our lives that we don't think are beautiful enough for other people to see. But it's all part of the story of God's grace. And denial keeps God and his word at a distance. Instead, when we become, well, when we live in in those secrets, we become slaves to the secrets that we're keeping. And instead, grace invites us into a secure way of living where we can be authentically who we are and who God's made us to be to the people around us because we know that Jesus has covered all of our shortcomings. So next slide, last slide, uh, is, is this idea of whose story is it? Because when Jesus pays the debt of our sin, he owns our story and he loves us and we can trust him to let that be known in his way at his time. And we can come to rest instead of always managing how we look to others. We can simply live before God authentically with other people. And, and King David, uh, who wrote a number of the Psalms in the middle of your Bible, if you cracked your Bible open like right in half, you'd land in the book of Psalms. And David just revels in the reality of God's forgiveness at the beginning of Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. And, and it's like a mirror image of some of what John says in First John 1, where John says, look, if we claim we haven't sinned, we're lying and we're making God out to be a liar. It's a way of living that's deceit. But David's way of living was to revel in the forgiveness and a deceit-free heart, a heart that's free from... Uh, all these little lies and concealments, is a heart that can fully enjoy the blessing of forgiveness. And one of the places that I think that may have been tested in David's life, but it proves the authenticity of it, is right at the beginning of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is is a psalm, it's a prayer crying out for forgiveness. And there's these there's a part that's in the original Hebrew text. It'll show up in the translation in your Bible, right underneath where it says Psalm 51, but right before where verse one starts. And it's a heading, and many of the Psalms have a little bit of heading. They might say who the author was. It might use some obscure Hebrew musical term to tell the musician something about, you know, the kind of tune that they might use for it. But here, this is one of the longest verse zeros. that you find in the Psalms. And it says this, for the director of music, that means this is a song for everyone to sing together, right? It's a public release, not a private song. Secondly, it says a Psalm of David. So who wrote it? David did. And then it says when. It's telling us what was the the setting. It was the origin story. Uh, Some of you may remember that Brooke shared with us Uh, some of the origin story of a song that she and, and Corey had written that we were singing together in worship. And here's the origin story of Psalm 51. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, David was the king. He could probably censor that public acknowledgement of his sin. But instead, it's out there and it has been for generation after generation after generation of believers, is that this story is a story of God's grace. This story isn't about how bad David was. Like Karen shared last week um, about Mary Magdalene. Karen said, the Bible says there were seven demons cast out of her. And it's tempting to think that that could be a story about how bad she must have been to end up in that situation. But instead, as Karen said, It's a story of God's grace and how good God is. And so for David, he didn't try to expunge the record. Instead, it was a reflection of God's goodness and his mercy. And for each of us, we've got stories that mingle our own failings and shortcomings, our own struggles, suffering, and crisis, and the goodness and mercy of God following us all the days of our lives. And that's that's why I asked Jim and Susie to come here, not particularly just, you know go through all your list of sins, Jim. Um, I, in fact, time-wise, we're probably limited, bro. Uh, but uh, but but we can make much of the goodness of God in the next fifteen minutes or so here together. And so, um, I, as long as I've known Jim and Susie, they've had this healthy security in the Lord about just being real with others about the reality of their story. And, and so my hope here is not that you'll just hear their story, but that you'll see something about how we can live in confidence that God's got us, that God's got a hold of us in our past, in our now, and in whatever comes tomorrow. So could I just ask you, press rewind, take us way on back. Uh, what's it been, 30-some years now when you guys were on the brink of divorce? And how many? 32. 32, 32 time flies? Um, when you guys were like literally right on the brink of divorce, how did you get there? And how did you not end up there?
0: Okay. I'll take this one because I I was the source of why we got there. Um, 99% of it was me. Um, I was... I currently, well, I should say my previous life back then, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I did a lot of bad things, a lot of things that I'm not proud of. But my lovely wife decided to get together an intervention for me. I know you guys have all seen the TV shows Intervention, this was back before it was cool to have an intervention. This was a long time ago. But basically what they do is they get your friends and family together and tell you how bad of a person you've been and what you've done and try and urge you to go to the hospital, to a, you know, a treatment center and get some help. And so I listened to all this stuff and I was still pretty full of myself. So I said, yeah, you know what? I'll go. I'll go get checked out. I'll find out there's nothing wrong with me and I'm out of here and we continue with the divorce. So I checked into, well, they checked me into a, a medical facility, which I thought was an overnight stay, uh, to get a physical and, you know, an examination and turned out it was a, and I signed myself voluntarily in for a, um, thirty days stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyways, this was in Michigan City, and um, um, so I spent thirty days in rehab, and um, had no intentions whatsoever of changing my lifestyle whatsoever. I was there for the thirty days, and pff, I'm out of here and on with life. And uh, in the midst of that. Um, I met God again and he came back into my life and it was like, it was a pretty crazy time. But at the end of that time, we started putting our marriage back together, started putting our relationship with, with God back together. And um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting 32 years ever since then.
1: Susie, what was that that zone and that month like for you, and where did the Lord come into the mix for you?
2: Well, I had already—we we were both raised in a Christian home. Hold that nice and
1: close. It actually, don't be afraid of it. It works better if it's close. Okay. That's true for any of us, by the way.
2: Okay. Um, we were both raised in a Christian home, and when we got married, we um, initially— had a relationship with God. But then as the drugs and alcohol got worse and I kind of just, you know, quit having a relationship with God, so did he. Um, But when he got really bad, which this was 10 years into our marriage because we've been married 42 years now. And um, when it really got bad, we had also gone through seven years of infertility we had a seven-year-old son and then right before he um we did the intervention right before the divorce we had a a newborn and during that time we were both away from God but um before we filed for divorce I had gone back to God before he did and um during that time it was really interesting because I was like you know, I can't save him. I can't do anything. So I was really pouring out my heart to God. And um, one of the things that I had done was I put the house up for sale. And I was praying, you know, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And God showed up then before anything else. Because the lady I called to put the house up for sale, I had never met her before. And she came over, and she says, after she looked at the house, she says, well, I'm going to ask you a question, she says, that which is out of the ordinary for me, but why are you putting this house up for sale? And I started crying. I says, because I'm getting a divorce. And she looked at me, and she says, okay, why are you getting a divorce? And I'm like, well, my husband... Has a drug and alcohol problem, and I I just feel like the boys and I need to get away from that. Um, and she said, "Well, he do, you don't have to put your house up for sale or get a divorce." She says, "I can put you in contact with a guy at the care unit in Michigan City, and and your husband can be cured of this." And I was like, "And she says, and I will pray for you." And she gave me the number, and I went and I met with the guy, and we met, like, several times before we set up the intervention. And um, I was just like, okay, God, you know, I don't want to watch him die because he was spiraling that he even said he'd probably be dead within a year. So we set up the intervention, and we had good friends that had... um, They were going to do a concert at the church I was going to at the time, and I asked him to go, and he said, yeah, he would go. And it was the night before the intervention, but he didn't know that. (laughs) So he went with me to their concert, because they're good friends with him too, um, and went to the concert, and I said, I was silently praying during that time. I says, Lord, if this intervention's gonna work and Jim's gonna get cured, I says, give me a sign. And right at that moment, he reached over and he grabbed my hand and he squeezed my hand and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> We're all good for this intervention tomorrow. And, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we did the intervention and it was, he was in detox for like three days. And the third day he calls me, when I dropped him off at the hospital, he told me he never wanted to see me again. And I was like, Okay, hey, Lord, you told me you had this. So three days later he calls me and he says, can you ask pastor to come see me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I get on the phone, I call our pastor who was in Mirabel, and I says, Jim wants to see you. Well, I had already been meeting with our pastor and I had gone back to that church. And he says, I'll I'll be there in a half hour. He says, oh, wait a minute, the drive's longer than that. And he says, I'll be there in an hour. And he went and talked to Jim. And the following Sunday, it was Easter Sunday, and they gave Jim a six-hour pass um, to get out of the care unit. And he decided to walk the aisle and rededicate his life and our marriage on Easter Sunday, 32 years ago. So. Thanks. And it was a rough road after that. I mean, of course, we had a lot of repairing to do, and he had a couple relapses, but basically,
1: I drive for 32 years. Mm-hmm. That, you guys keep that on. Yeah. But that, that process of re-entry into a community of people, known as church, um, who, who knew you and knew your junk... Is the kind of thing that can be really threatening, and the kind of thing that it's easy for people to feel too ashamed to reappear in that group of people. Maybe they'll go make a fresh start somewhere else, but they feel like I can't face people who know all my issues and how I failed, and feel like you failed them because they know. And and I asked Jim uh, this week, how did you deal with that? And I loved your answer. Do you remember what you said? <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> You
0: know, John did ask me, you know, how did you manage to, you know, not worry about telling people your story all the time? And I thought about it and I said, you know, we were really more concerned about repairing our relationship with God and repairing our relationship with each other that we really were not concerned about what other people thought. We were just, you know, kind of in the zone of, we need to get right with God. We need to get right with each other. And if people don't like that, I'm sorry, but I can't help you with that. You know, I got, I got enough going on right now.
1: <laughs> and, you know, when, when you guys tell that story, it sort of sets the stage for kind of feeling like, okay, once you've been through that, I mean, you were, you were on track to being dead within a year. The marriage was a day from signing off the final divorce papers and and God breaks in. I mean, it's like, okay, from there forward, it ought to be kind of smooth sailing, uh, right? Yeah, it doesn't work that way, does it? And, and you guys have, have been through, you know, a couple little things since then of, you know, near bankruptcy and dying again and, and these sorts of things. Do you want to touch on any of those? Um,
0: well, I, I don't know. I don't know how much time we have here, but um, (laughs) let's see. We had um, we had a a crooked contractor who. um, (laughs) (laughs) We had a crooked contractor. We were adding on to our home because my wife has an in-home daycare, and we were adding on to our home. So we hired a contractor, and um, he put up a building on the side of our house. And um make a long story short, he just kind of took off with our money and um, just left us in a world of hurting. And that was a 10-year process that we had to dig out from under. And, um, it, it, you know, it was just, it was one of those devastating things where we just thought, we're never going to get through this. I mean, you know you talk about one day at a time it there wasn't even any words for this. I mean, we spent probably a month just like in seclusion, just ourselves we didn't if if we didn't have to go to work or we didn't have to leave the house, we didn't we didn't you know we didn't we were just just barely functioning um, Anything to add to that, no.
1: How did you
0: come through that? Um, we had a lot of friends that were praying for us, and um you know they would stop over and 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 try and console us and you know this this doesn't even come close, but it was kind of like the feeling of job in the bible you know we we had people who would come over and they had no idea what to say, they would just kind of. Sit with us and pray with us and it, it, it was hard, but eventually we did, we did get through it. And Susie has one of the most beautiful daycares right now, probably in the state of Indiana. Um, and it's just another testament to God. You know, he did this because we couldn't do any of that.
2: Mm -hmm. our daycare when the crooked contractor left with the money we went to the county tried to straighten it out we found out we had a land issue in the back of our yard um, ten foot and then a one foot strip that we were maintaining and paying taxes on that did not belong to us so we had to go through all of this court stuff to get this land And as we're going through it, we found out, well, we knew that the contractor, we found out after he left with our money, that he did not get permits. He falsified to us that he got permits. So when we found out the land issue, we realized that if we did not have a crooked contractor, we would have found out that in the beginning and would have jointly decided to never put that building up. So the building, that is there right now, would have never been there. So.
1: It's tempting for me to make this pastoral parable out of that, and I'll just go there, right? You know, about how many of the things in our life that we now say are such a blessing but came to us through such a process of pain would we have never signed up for if we would known, you know? Um, Susie, could I get you to tell us briefly about some of the time we spent in an emergency room? Uh, ...together last time that Jim was on his way out? Okay. <laughs> Did <your> scalpel <laughs> <in his skin? laughs> I I know this
2: I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> we actually... Um, when When we were putting our marriage back together... Um, yeah, we were working on our relationship, but we did say, "God, however you're going to use us," and He's used us working with other couples that don't want to go, that don't want to go to normal counseling. They prefer going to somebody who's been there, done that type thing. So we have, through the years, we're like, "Okay, God, however you want to use us." Well, we have gone through some huge things <laughs> that I've you know, after the crooked contractor, I'm like, okay, God, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> You know, no more big stuff like this. Well, um, that's not how we worked. So, <laughs> so 10 years ago, two weeks, two weeks ago, it was 10 years ago. Um, Jim got a real bad headache at work and started getting like flu like symptoms and it got so bad. He couldn't drive home and he only lived about 15 minutes from home or worked 15 minutes from home and uh, he had somebody else bring him home and he says and this is when the swine flu was starting to come out and that's what he thought he had so he took some NyQuil and went to bed and it was early in the afternoon and he went to bed and uh, he slept through and the next morning I woke up to it sounded like a in a china shop. I mean, things were crashing all through the house. And I woke up and I went to go see what was happening. He was knocking things over. And I, I said to him, I says, what's wrong? Do I need to call an ambulance? And he just looked at me, like looked through me. And then he stood back up and he went towards, we had a glass lamp in the um, living room full of seashells. And he knocked it over and shattered um, the lamp and fell backwards on the couch and went into a coma. So I called, called the ambulance. The first thing they did was take his blood sugar because he's diabetic and it was like 220 and they said no, that's not it. So they took him to the hospital and after they took him I called John. I said I don't know what's going on. Well, John answers the phone. Hi Susie, how's it going? How are you this morning? <laughs> I says, Not so good. He says, They just took Jim to the hospital. He's he's in a coma and he says, I'll be right there. So we go to the hospital and um had a wonderful doctor, Dr. Todd, and they ran him for tests right away and um come back with that he had double meningitis. And which is obviously life-threatening, um, and we started praying and deciding what we should do when we decided to have him airlifted to the University of Chicago. And they said it would be several hours before the helicopter would be there. So they kept him down in um, ER, and the infectious disease doctor came in. She took me back in this little room, and she told me, she says, He has a 50% chance of making it. If he does make it, he will be physically or mentally or both disabled. And I looked at her, and I says, that's not going to happen. And I remember saying it, but I don't know if I really felt it. But but then she says to me, she says, if he gets any worse before the helicopter gets here, I'm going to prevent you from taking him. So I got on the phone, and I says, John, am I making the right decision? Am I supposed to have him airlifted? And he says, I'll be there in a half hour. We'll pray about it. We'll talk about it when I get there. So in the meantime, they moved him up to ICU. And our old church, I guess it announced it at Saturday Night Church that night, but they moved him up to ICU, and when they did... One of our friends, Betty, calls down, and she says, they're looking for you. The helicopter's here already. And I says, they said that wasn't going to happen. And John shows up, and he says, see, you didn't have to make that decision. (laughs) God made it for you. So they took him in the helicopter, and then we walked down the hallway, and the waiting room in ICU was full of people, people from our old church, people from Crosspoint. They were praying together. They were making plans on who was going to take me to the hospital and making plans for meals and just all kinds of stuff that just blew me away. And some of them went to other churches at that time. So the next morning, this was being announced from the pulpit from probably... I don't even know how many churches, some even across the country. And at 11.35, he woke up from his coma. and was talking just completely normal. And I texted John because I knew church was ending. And I says, Jim's awake. And he says, we just finished service. And he went to announce to everybody that he was awake. And I'm like, at that point, there were probably thousands of people praying at 11.30. For him, because it had been announced from so many pulpits, people that he didn't even know that were praying for him, and God came in that moment and totally healed him. He he did stay in the hospital another seven days for the intravenous antibiotics, but he's been totally healed.
1: It's a much easier story to listen to when Jim's sitting here, and we know the outcome, (laughs) isn't it? Um, Jim's Jim's perspective on the on that whole experience was so different than the rest of ours because he slept through it all. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. Stop doing that to us, please. And yes, yes. Um, And just to to wrap up here, um, over the course of of seeing. God be with you through these things. It, it, from my perspective, it seemed like that has affected how you face the next challenges that you hit um, because it would have been, was it about five years ago that uh, you lost your job? Is that Am I? Okay. When was that? Three and a half. Okay, my bad. Time flies. Three and a half years ago, Jim lost his job, and at this stage of career... That is what I would normally count a high anxiety producing event. Um, and and I would say out of the folks that I've had the, the privilege of walking with pastorally through those kinds of life events, yeah, Jim sort of coasted through it in a sense of faith and rest from my perspective. Susie was, was that a deception or no, it was there. And, yeah, Susie just said his hardest part was telling me, I think. And, you know, and so even then coming into talking today, I said, you know, and, and Jim, what about losing your job? That's a big deal. He was like, no, it wasn't really. Uh, and I suppose that's a matter of perspective, but do you want to comment on that at all? Well,
0: yeah, um, I got fired from a job. I, I, I don't even know what to say. I, I got fired and, um, it, it wasn't my fault. Um, it was a service manager that that I had history with and when they hired him at this place, I knew the clock was running and at some point I was going to be leaving. I, I just didn't know when. And so, anyways, I got fired and uh I came home. I told my wife and she was like, well, don't worry about it, honey. You know, just, we'll see if we can collect unemployment and just, you know, take some time and let your body heal up and we'll be fine. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So um, the unemployment ran out, and I tried to find another job, and I couldn't find another job, which was really humbling because I never had trouble finding a job my entire life. So at that time, my daughter was pregnant due to have our first grandchild. She's in North Carolina because her husband's in the military. So my wife says, why don't you go out to North Carolina spend some time with your daughter? Okay, sounds like fun. So I went out to North Carolina and I hung out, and she had the baby, and everything was good. She, Susie, yeah, flew in. This
1: is role reversal for a lot of the guys I in know. the building, right? I know. Because that that very hands on part the, that you were it, doing it is yeah. it is,
0: but there's there's yeah. an ending to yeah. this story too. Mm -hmm. So my wife came out for the birth, and, you know, everything was good. We flew back home. We were not home very long. We got the call from my daughter that they had airlifted my grandson to Duke University with a heart problem. Well, knowing when you get airlifted, that's not a good thing. Um, we immediately made plans to fly back out to North Carolina, and um, it, it was pretty serious. So um, there were some pretty, pretty interesting times in the hospital, but the really cool thing about it was I was there, I was able to be there the entire time with my grandson, and I gotta tell you, there were times that it was just me and him in ICU and I was just praying to God. And I wasn't begging. I wasn't, I was just, I knew God had been good in the past. I knew he was going to be good in the present and I knew he was going to be good in the future. And I was just praying promises over Oliver that I knew God had great things in store for him. And Oliver came through the surgery and he was fine and Less than a year later, he went in, had open-heart surgery, and he is now like the most energetic little boy that you could ever imagine. And and it's it, it's nothing on my part. It's, you know, nothing I can do. It was just like pouring out to God and just saying, God, I know you're good. You've always been good in the past. I trust you're going to be good in the in the present, and I know you're going to be good in the future.
1: I was about to ask you if there was kind of one way you would sum up and encourage us where we're, you know, kind of ashamed of our past and struggling in our present and afraid for our future. What would you say to us? And it kind of feels like you just did. Well,
0: you know, it's it's been a process. 32 years ago, I wouldn't be able to say this the way I just did. Because I didn't have that history with God. But having walked now 32 years and still sin in my life, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I'm super saint and I never sin because that would be a sin right there in itself. (laughs) So, but I'm going to tell you that I cannot look back in my life and say, that there has ever been a point when God let me down. He may not have answered a prayer exactly the way I wanted him to, exactly the time I wanted him to, but trust me, he answers prayers. And he answers them in his way, in his time, and he gets all the glory and all the praise for him. And there's nothing I can do but stand on his promises. And that's that's what I can tell you now. Do not be ashamed of your past because there isn't anything you can do about your past. Use your past. Use your past to help other people and stand on God's promises.
1: Amen. Well, let's thank these guys. Did you want to add more? Did you want to add more? No? Yeah. You're usually not the one reaching for
2: the microphone. Oh, yeah. Well, it's... This week has been rough, which John doesn't even know about. Um, Oliver is doing fine. Um, Right before his open heart, the last heart surgery he had last July, they actually, he had other issues and surgeries and slow weight gain, and he was diagnosed with Williams syndrome, which they have heart issues. They have thyroid issues. They have hernia issues they have
1: this is the grand baby. if anybody's lost that's crack, that's, that's that, that
2: this is Oliver yes yeah. so he, a year ago he was diagnosed with that and um, right after his surgery in in July he was turning one on August 1st well on July 31st he got a new brother and his brother Owen is the opposite as far as weight gain and all that. He's like 23 pounds and he's 10 months old right now. He's huge. <laughs> but on Thursday, he was d- diagnosed as being deaf. So now we're going through another stage of, you know, depending on God. And I know things have come a long way in, you know, hearing aids and, you know, uh that type of thing. But it's, it has definitely been a struggle and we have to rely on God because we can't do it ourselves. And it's, it's really hard though when you're watching your own child and grandchildren go through it. And we're hoping that we have passed on that dependence on God to the next generation and the next generation. And I know that Jim is here and survived the meningitis to be a part of of our kids and our grandkids and what God has done for us, so,
1: Amen. That uh, thanks for sharing that, Susie. It, it's such a reminder to us too that as God brings us through things, we don't stop being dependent on the Lord. If anything, we're we're drawn closer. We press in more deeply. The uh, musicians are going to come forward, and the guys who're going to pass the communion trays are going to start distributing the communion trays, and as they do. Could we ask you guys to pray for us as well? Would you guys just be willing to pray as these we start we're gonna pass some communion trays, musicians are coming, but could you guys just take the mic and would you pray for the church? Thanks.
0: Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for loving us. Father, we thank you that that we have a sister church like this, like Mercy Hill, full of just wonderful people that love you and and trust you. And it is just so good to be a part of this kind of a community, Lord. So, Father, we just pray blessing on this church. Uh, we pray that their, their walk will be deepened with you. Father, we just hope that, that this glimpse into our life this morning has been um, in some way helpful to somebody. And, and just give somebody some hope this morning that no matter what life brings you, that you're here with us. And that's the best thing possible in all the world. You can have riches, you can have fame, you can have glory. But if you don't have the Lord, you have absolutely nothing. So, Lord, we just thank you again. Father, we thank you for for allowing us to be used by you. And, Lord, we just give you all the praise and all the glory through all of
1: this. And here's what's next. Uh, Guys, go ahead and start passing out the communion trays. And let's join and sing through the song together. And when we're done sharing communion together, we'll have a chance for anyone who wants to come up front and join in prayer together with Jim and Susie to be able to do that. Sometimes we talk about praying for someone if you want someone to pray for you. Really, we believe in praying for people, but really we believe in praying with, praying together. And for some of us to pray with them for their grandchildren, also they'll pray with us. If you want to be part of that time of prayer, When we're done sharing communion, we'll make it available up here in the front. But let's join together in sing as the baskets or the bread and the juice are being passed.